I have the privilege and the pleasure to share with you the everlasting gospel this morning. It comes from Luke chapter 23 or 24. Now, as you know for sure, and sometimes pass over, not, not only did Jesus appear to the women at the tomb, to his 12 disciples, but also 500 other living beings, uh, humans, during his resurrection appearances of 40 days. This particular story that uh, Simon's going to preach us through today uh, comes from the 24th chapter of Luke, where, where Jesus appears on Sunday evening of Easter uh, to two others. Uh, the, the, the words are on the screen there in your Bibles, in your hand, and other places. So uh, hear the word of God. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleophas asked, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They, they came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was still alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what he had said, what was said in them in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave it to and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together, saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. These are the words of, of God for us today. May we pray. This morning, Lord, like those two disciples walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus so many years ago, our eyes can be consumed with what we think, what we think we see, what we think we know, and what we believe to be our problems. And we miss the very fact that you are standing next to us, walking every step with us along the way. Lord, help our unbelief. Help our hardened hearts to wake up and see your truth. Let us not make up a social construct that feels good and call it a belief system. Let us not make life in faith without sacrifice or commitment. Help us to be awakened 
to your everlasting truth and love and empower us to let ourselves go and live with you. Lord, we know that you are always blessing Simon. This morning we ask that you bless him with your Holy Spirit, that he might speak your powerful and prophetic and perfect word, that our hearts might be open to you today. Amen. Go get him, Simon. All right. Good morning, everybody. My name is Simon Campbell. I'm the Director of Worship and Technology here at Marion Methodist. And um, many of you know my wife, Laura, uh, but you may not know that, that we've been together for over 13 years now. Uh, we're high school sweethearts, started dating when we were 16, been together ever since. So the picture you see on, on the screen is actually from our senior prom. And... Uh, when people look at this picture, they see, okay, well, Laura is as beautiful as ever, but Simon, where'd your hair go, and what's, what's the deal with this? Which is a perfectly reasonable question, and I don't really have an answer, so, um, but, uh, yeah, so, being together so long results in a lot of stories, so I'm going to tell you a story of something that happened at our senior prom. Um, so, we did a lot of the things that that prom dates do. We got together with our friends and said, okay, what do you want to do before the dance, before the prom? And so we got together and my buddies and I decided we were going to take our dates on to this really romantic restaurant. And um, my, uh, my friends and I, our perceptions of a great place to take our dates was, go ahead and put the next one up, the Hoo Hot Mongolian Grill. <laughs> we thought that was a great idea. We were super excited. And so for those of you who've never been to Huhat, it's, it's a stir-fry place, right? You go in, you uh, select a bunch of foods from this raw food buffet, and then you put a bunch of sauces on it, and they cook it up for you at this big grill. Well, one of my friends, David, had never been to Huhat before. And so we're going for the first time and, uh, as a part of prom, and, and we're super excited. And uh, so we go through, Laura and I get our stuff, we go through the line, we get, we're heading back towards the table, and we notice that David has already made it back to the table. And um, so we walk up to him, and he's, he's looking down at his, at his plate, and he's just got this most, like, the most confused face on. Like, like oh, what is, what's going on? And he's, like, trying to pick through. He's got some, like, carrots and a couple pieces of broccoli and, and just a few random things on his plate. And he's just looking like, I don't even know how I'm going to eat this. He had missed the part of, of going to the grill and having him cook it for you. And so he thought he had made this assumption that he was supposed to eat all this raw food. And uh, obviously, a bad assumption, okay? I tell you this story because today we're going to be talking about assumptions. And some things that are, are natural to us to think, but perhaps not in line with what Jesus has for us. So in college, um, as a part of one of my uh, New Testament theology classes... Our professor had us read a book that was a, a compilation of, of the results of a bunch of interviews. And uh, the interviewers interviewed Christians, American Christians, all across the country, particularly of um, the teenage youth. And they asked them about their beliefs about who God is, their perceptions of the church, and their relationship with God. And so after, after thousands upon thousands of interviews, they put all this stuff together, and they... And they uh, found some pretty common assumptions among all of this, all of the study group. And they put these assumptions together into one term. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. 
moralistic therapeutic deism. Now, I'm actually helping you out with this term. So when you go to, to brunch or whatever after this, and somebody asks you what the sermon is like, you're going to sound real smart. Moralistic therapeutic deism. So we're going to break this down bit by bit. Because these are, uh, are, are three separate assumptions. The first assumption that, that Christianity and the church is all about being moral. This is moralistic. This assumption is that being a Christian is all about being a good person. That we are supposed to get along with everybody. We're, we're supposed to be nice, respectful, kind, taking care of your health and, and doing everything you can to be successful in your life. The second part um, is that if, if we do good things, they'll outweigh the bad things that we do. That, that um, the, our, our worthiness of heaven is based off this balancing of the scales somehow. That if we do enough good things to outweigh the bad things, we're good with God and we've earned our spot in heaven. The last part of this assumption is that it, it makes going to church a good habit and part of becoming a better person. It's kind of like going to the gym. You know, you, you dread going unless you're in the habit of it. You, um, you feel pretty good about it, when, about yourself after you've been, uh, but you, you feel guilty anytime you, you skip or you miss, right? That's, that's part of this assumption, this feeling. This second assumption, therapeutic, moralistic therapeutic deism. So the therapeutic assumption about Christianity is that Christianity, this is all about, all from their findings, that Christianity is all about finding an overall sense of well-being, about finding balance in your life. This is about feeling good um, and that God wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. And that if we follow him, God is going to lead us. To these things. And then lastly, under the therapeutic assumption, church is a place where we go to be fed. We've heard this before, that church helps you feel better when you're down, that it gives you something good to think about, that you're surrounded in a place with a bunch of nice people who treat you well, make you feel good, make you feel welcome. And that lastly, that uh, when, you, when you come to church, you can feel encouraged and from this emotional release of having listened to beautiful music and, and meaningful prayers. The last part of this um, belief system is the assumption, this deistic assumption, deism, that God is not, and what this means is that God is not particularly involved in your life and, is, and God is only around when, when we need Him to solve a problem. And that God has created and ordered the world, but he watches over us from afar and just basically says, you, you know where to find me if you need me. That overall, that God is an undemanding deity. I'm going to read you a quote from, uh, from this book that this study is based from. God is something like a combination of a divine butler and a cosmic therapist. He is always on call, takes care of any problems that arise professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves and does not become too personally involved in the process. This is from Dr. Christian Smith. This, this assumption that God isn't really all that involved in our life unless we need him to resolve something for us, it makes church kind of an empty ritual. 
Because when we go, we don't really expect God to be there. We don't expect God, His, His personal presence to be in and among us. We're just going through the, the motions. Our traditions just become um, empty uh, rituals going through the motions. There's no legacy of faith in there if we don't expect God to be in the room with us. If we don't expect God's presence to be moving through us. So in summary... This is kind of complicated, but I, to sum it all up, moralistic therapeutic deism assumes that Christianity is all about being nice people who are fair to others and who do good things, that the central goal is to find peace and well-being in your life, and that God is there to help us solve our problems when we ask Him to help us. And if we, if, if we as the North American church believe these assumptions, ultimately... The, the, what we see is the ultimate goal of, of the Christian church is to have full churches of nice people doing gr- good things for the community and that they're happy and successful, that will have big programs, big buildings, and a big community impact. Now, I say these things not because these are bad things. These are good things. But they're not the ultimate goal. They're not God's ultimate purpose and plan for Christians in the world. And they fall short of what, of what God is hoping to do through us. You see, in our, in our passage that was read today, there's, a, there's a, a sentence that the disciples say, that these two followers walking on the road say when Jesus is asking them about the events that happened, that reveal their assumptions about who they thought Jesus was. They said, we had hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. We had hoped that he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. Now many of Jesus' followers who had been with him, seen all of his miracles, seen the things that he had done, what he talked talked about, they were still under this assumption that um, Jesus was the Messiah according to the Jewish tradition at the time. And this was this is what they expected out of the Messiah. That the Messiah would come to rescue Israel from the Romans. That the, that the Messiah would come and they would throw off the Roman government and Israel would once again be an independent nation. Second, that the Messiah would restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glory under, its, uh, under the kings of old like David and Solomon. And lastly, they thought that the Messiah um, was to usher in God ultimate, God's ultimate plan which was to make the nation of Israel a, a nation devoted to God and so that God could dwell with them forever. Now, the irony in this story that, that we hear in the scriptures is that Jesus is walking along with them, but they don't know who he is. And they say to him, when he asks them about what has happened over the last few days, well, you must be the only person who doesn't know what's happened in Jerusalem. When in reality, of course... We know, reading this, that Jesus is the only one who's actually known what's happening. Because you see, Jesus does fulfill all the expectations of Messiah, but not in the way that his followers and the people of that time thought. Jesus did come and he did defeat the ultimate oppressor, but it was not the Roman Empire. It was the powers of sin and death over humanity, and he set the captives free forever. Second, his work had come to redeem the whole world, not just Israel as a kingdom. He came to establish a new kingdom that went beyond the boundaries of our cultures and our properties and our lands, but that it went throughout all humanity. And lastly, that you know, God's, God's plan was to restore the right relationship with his people, but 
it wasn't just the kingdom of Israel. He came to establish intimacy and relationship with all of humanity so that God would dwell with us forever in our hearts. So in the same way, we we talked about this moralistic therapeutic deism. You know, Jesus went on the road. He had had gone through these disciples' assumptions and went through all the scriptures and prophets concerning the prophecies of the Messiah and and told them what it meant, right? And so we're going to do a similar thing. We're going to go to scripture. We're going to go to scripture and see what it says about these assumptions. So just as a reminder, this first one, this moralistic assumption of Christianity, that Christianity is all about being a good person, that our good deeds cancel out our bad ones, and that going to church is a good habit, a part of becoming a better person. Let's see what the Bible says. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. You see, what the scripture says is that even our best deeds, the things that we do with the purest of intentions, with the noblest of desires, these things are nothing but filthy rags before God. And what this is to say is that it doesn't matter how many good things that we do. They don't earn us salvation. They don't earn us a place in heaven. No, measure, no, no thing that we can do can measure up to the standards of, standards of heaven because Jesus has already done it. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, God saved you by His grace when you believed. And you, t- you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that He planned for us long ago. Jesus has already done the work. He's already done the good work. And our salvation is a free gift from Him. And here's the beauty. When we accept and believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior and we welcome the transformation that He brings into our lives... Our good works are no longer something that we do for a selfish gain of trying to increase our status and and earn our spot in heaven, but that through the transformation of Jesus Christ, we become a new person. We become a, a masterpiece of God so that all the individual and unique gifts that He has given us, now in our transformed lives, He can use us to do the good things that He has planned for us specifically to do. And they may be things that take us further out of our comfort zone than we would do if we were just doing them for our own selfish gain and our own self-perception of where we stand in heaven. The second assumption that we talked about, that, that Christianity is a, is a therapeutic faith. 1 Peter 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 12 through 13 says this, Dear friends, Don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in His suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing His glory when it is revealed to the world. You see, 
The problem with the therapeutic assumption of Christianity, the the assumption that God just wants us to be healthy, wealthy, and happy, and the closer we are to Him and the more we follow Him, the more we we will be spared from bad things happening to us, that's not what the Bible promises. That's not what the Bible promises. Trials will come. That's the promise. Trials will come, but when they do come, they don't, they don't destroy us because our hope is in something beyond this world, beyond the circumstances of, of the things of earth. And this is why I think in our, in our culture, you often hear this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? This is why we have such a problem with that question. Because we, we assume that God has made a promise that He hasn't. God never made the promise that trials won't come to us in our lives, but as Christians... When we do experience those things, no matter how good we are, we will experience victory, not because, not because our circumstances are different, but because our hope is in something that cannot be touched by our circumstances. In that same chapter of 1 Peter, it says, God has given each of you a gift from His great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God Himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then everything you do will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. You see, this myth of therapeutic Christianity, that church is a place where we come to be fed. I think a lot of times churches and pastors and and church staffs um, we end up spending, up spending a lot of effort trying to come up with creative ways and, and um, unique ways to communicate the faith. And um, there are a lot of good things that come from that process. But essentially, sometimes it feels like um, you're doing the, the... Have you ever fed a toddler before? Right? Where, where you've, got this, you've got the spoon of squash and you're doing the... Just to try to get it in their mouths, right? To distract them enough that they'll open their mouths to receive what they need. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be doing those things. I'm not saying we shouldn't be creative in worship and creative in communicating our faith with others because it's a good outreach. But, as Christians, we can't be the 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 80 year olds that are still sitting in the high chair waiting for somebody to zip that into our mouths. We've been given everything we need in the scriptures. We've been, we have, the, you know, as a church, we seek to provide all these programs and things to allow people to dig into their faith and become more and more um, close to Jesus, right? So pick up a spoon, feed yourself, and use that spoon. Not only that, but take that spoon and begin serving Begin serving the gospel of Jesus to other people. Because here's the beauty of it. If we use our gifts as this, as this scripture indicates. If we come to church each and every week seeking to serve one another and the people around us. Guess what? Our own needs are going to be met by others. By using our specific gifts and talents. Contributing to the body of Christ and serving others. Our own needs are inevitably going to be met. Lastly, this assumption of deism within uh, North American Christianity. Here's what the Bible says in Philippians 2, chapter 6 through 7. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. 
Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. You see, God didn't, God didn't create and order the world and just say, Hey, you know where to find me if you need me. He didn't leave us to our problems. The person of Jesus completely refutes this myth because he came, he wrapped himself in flesh and became intimately involved in our problems. And not only that, he came to to suffer and die and destroy them so that we, we would no longer be subject to the problems of this world. You see, Christianity is not a relationship that we become more and more um, under the therapy of God. It's not, like, it's not like the further we go into Christianity, the better and better we get and the less and less we need Him. Christian life is a process of learning and needing to know Jesus and depend on Him even more, more and more, so that we are more and more dependent on Him. So don't just pray or relate to God when you have a problem. Trust Him with your whole life. Entrust Him with your whole life. It says in Proverbs 3 verses 5, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all that you do and He will show you which path to take. And when we come to church, Jesus is not distant Jesus is not distant. In Matthew 18, verse 20, it says, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Jesus is a real personal presence. So when we come together to worship, we have to know, we have to realize that He's here with us in the room, moving in our lives, shaping our hearts, making certain things show up to others. So when we come together, our, our, the things that we do, they're not just empty traditions. They're a beautiful way of having that relationship and growing that relationship with Jesus. So when we come together, know that He is here. The assumption of, of moralistic therapeutic deism is that it's all ultimately the goal of Christianity is just these full churches, big programs, big community outreach. But that's, we need to be clear that that's not the definition. That's not the standard of success. We could do all of those things and fall short of God's purpose for us. You see, success in the Christian faith is to see transformed lives from, by Jesus Christ. All of these things that we do within these walls are great. They're great. But unless... But unless they're resulting in transformed lives outside of these walls, we're not succeeding. That's our mission statement. The mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. These, we should expect transformation in our lives. And if we're succeeding as a church, yes, we may have these big programs, but we're seeing transformed lives outside of this space. Living for Jesus should shatter our assumptions and transform how you look at your relationships, how you use your money, how you perceive your status in the world. Sex, money, power, happiness, all of these things should be completely transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like my friend David at Huhat. 
sitting there with his bowl of raw vegetables. We have all the ingredients right in front of us. But we may be missing the fire. We need to be set on fire by the Holy Spirit, so completely devoted to Jesus that we live out our lives to serve Him. And in so doing, we can become the unique and distinct flavor, separate from our culture, beyond what our culture dictates, and living into the kingdom of God so He can transform the world through us. I've said this multiple times um, in my sermons, and I, I'm going to say it again. Following Jesus will demand more of you than you would ever expect. But it offers us far more than we could ever dream. Following Jesus will demand more of you than we would ever expect, but will offer you more than you could ever dream. You see the disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. They had their assumptions. They anticipated certain things about what Jesus would do. But ultimately, when Jesus revealed to them their purpose, when He revealed to them their mission, their assumptions were shattered. And they followed Him and became a part of the world-changing movement that has brought us to this point, that has passed down the faith through thousands of years and, and hundreds upon hundreds of generations of people. And we can experience the same things if we allow God to call us out of our churchy culture. If we allow God to call us out from the culture that we live to shatter our assumptions, to transform us and use us for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we, we seek you. And we know, Father, that ultimately all of us are, to some extent, products of the places that we grew up in, the products of our own culture. But Lord, we, we pray that as we continue to seek you, that you would call us, call us out of our culture and bring us into yours. That you would take us from being citizens of the kingdom of this world and call us into be, to be citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of God. Lord, shatter our assumptions. Continue to, to show us your truth so that we may become more and more dependent upon you. We love you, Lord, and we seek you. Help us, Jesus. All this we ask and pray in your precious name. Amen. At this time, before we receive our offering, I'm going to invite Dylan Fawcett to come up here. Um, he's a seminary student, and he's going to be talking about some of the things that are going on um, in, in one of the projects that he's doing. So give him a hand. Thanks for that wonderful sermon, Simon. That was awesome. Morning, guys. How's everybody doing? Good? It didn't sound like it. How's everybody doing? Good. I'm good, too. So my name is Dylan Fawcett. Uh, like Simon mentioned, I'm a seminary student. One of my classes I'm working on is my senior sem project. I'm working on a project that is very near and dear to my heart and very near and dear to your guys' heart. We're working with RTS missions to feed children in Haiti. So I went to, on a trip to Haiti when I was a senior in high school and fell in love with the place. It's a beautiful country with beautiful people. They just don't have as much as we have. Material-wise, 
but they have far much more joy and happiness and fellowship, and they're, they're truly grateful for what they do have. And that, that changed my heart when I went over there. So this project is, is coming from that love that I have. Um, and I want... <clears throat> excuse me. So what we're doing is we are raising money. We are going to sell T-shirts for $15 each. We're going to sell earrings for $5 each. And we will also be accepting free will offering. And for every two T-shirts purchased, we'll provide one food box to kids in Haiti. Now, one food box feeds six people for an entire month. We have a goal of purchasing 50 food boxes, which will in turn feed 300 people for an entire month. Now, three out of four kids in Haiti is malnourished. That's 75% of the kids on average, which that's just ridiculous. It shouldn't be like that. So we're starting this project to help build that number to make it lower and lower. And we're selling these awesome Love Haiti t-shirts that I'm modeling right now. It's pretty awesome. I love the design. Very simple. Love Haiti, right? And if everyone in this room... Mike, how many, how many people do you think are in here right now? That's a lot of t-shirts. And that's a lot of food for kids in Haiti. So if everybody were to buy one shirt, we could reach our goal and go past it. So I encourage you guys, we're, we're going to be at a table in the hallway. We're going to be downstairs at a table in Fellowship Hall. So if you get some coffee, come check us out. We're selling t-shirts selling earrings, these lovely earrings that my mother made. I would be wearing them, but I don't have my ears pierced. But you can tell they're awesome. So come check us out. We'll be here all morning until noon. If you do not have money today to buy a t-shirt or earrings, don't worry. We'll be here until um, on April 15th April and April 22nd. T-shirt orders will be placed on the 23rd, the following Monday, and you will get your t-shirts. They will all have your name on it. So there's an order form here. You list your name and you'll get your t-shirt. We'll have it on a table outside and write your name on it in a couple weeks. So it should be pretty easy to find. Let's feed some children in Haiti, guys. Thanks.